Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Waybreak Podcast, Leading Brands. Really excited for today's episode. I'm joined by Preston Rutherford, who is a co-founder at Chubby's, and we talk about everything from getting the brand off the ground, which personally what I love about the brand is it isn't just like, you know, hey, look, we're looking at these Google search trends and like, this is a business we think is going to be big. It was just like built on intuition and a vision for a product and a brand that should exist in the market. And then, you know, just figuring it out along the way. And um, Preston goes into all of that. We talk about, you know, everything from getting the brand off to uh, off the ground, like I said, to, you know, building that initial performance marketing engine that a lot of brands run today, ultimately transitioning into more of a optimized marketing mix where, he wasn't just trying to drive performance, but also trying to build brands so that as many people per day were coming and just searching for Chubbies automatically just because of the brand that they had built, which ended up building a very resilient, just baseline level of revenue for the brand and ultimately made it an extremely strong brand that ultimately got acquired. And uh, we cover all of that, how to make the transition from like a pure performance, direct response marketing engine to more of a brand marketing engine without losing revenue and and while increasing profitability in the process. So there's a lot to learn in this episode. I'm really excited to get into it. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Dylan Kelly. I'm the founder of Wavebreak, a leading email and CRM agency. And when it comes to relying less on ad platforms and increasing profitability. One of the best ways to do that is by doubling down on email and SMS marketing. And at Wavebreak, we've been doing this for years, working with brands like Curology, Nutrafol, and many of the other top direct consumer brands, working as an extension of their team to help them understand their data and execute a program through email and SMS marketing that's gonna maximize both revenue and profit through best-in-class optimization, testing, and strategy of campaigns, flows, automations, and everything in between. So if you'd like to learn more about partnering with us, you can do so by heading to wavebreak.co. Link is down in the show notes below. That's wavebreak.co, W-A-V-E-B-R-E-A-K.co. You can learn more there. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Preston Rutherford, co-founder of Chubbies. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Preston. Yeah, Dylan, I appreciate it. Pumped to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to really excited to get into it. So, um, yeah, obviously, a lot of people listening, they're probably uh, familiar with Chubbies. I'm not sure how familiar they are with you know you or like the founding story, uh, but I think that'd be a great place to to start. Um, you know, take us back to the beginning. How how, how did you get involved with Chubbies, and uh, you know what made you want to launch this this brand? <laughs> so yeah, perfect, great place to start. I think. What's useful to share is, so we were about maybe four or five years out of college. There were four of us who started it. And, uh, you know, I think all of us realized we had the itch to, you know, no longer work for someone else. And more than anything, it was just the four of us in search of a business idea. (laughs) And, you know, basically through process of elimination, kind of stumbled upon you know, making tiny shorts for men, but so none of us studied computer science. So we weren't going to invent Instagram with, which, you know, someone who lived like right across the street from us at college did and, and things like that. So it was like, well, what can we do? Um, we think we have, one of us had the knowledge of how to actually, you know, make clothes, run a clothing business. He had done so at a, you know, really large global, uh, brand and uh and then the three others of us 
you know, we're scrappy, let's call us, you know, utility, utility players, if you will. And, you know, thought we understood maybe consumer psychology to a certain degree, had maybe a sense of humor, had a desire to create content and, you know, felt like we had maybe some operational chops as well. Um, and one of the things at the time, one of us was in private equity and had evaluated Shopify. And so Shopify was very much newer at the time, right? But that was one of the things too, just sort of like these, these macro structural changes that took you from maybe having to spend a million bucks to get an e-commerce store up and running to, I don't know, whatever Shopify's monthly was at the time, nine bucks a month and uh, with a much longer free trial. So you completely changed the friction associated with selling something online. So that was new. And, and then you had like the beginnings of, of social media, not that uh, back in 2011, social media didn't exist, but very nascent. And this notion of, you know, building a community, building an audience, it was, it was far, far newer. So there were some of these things where we're just kind of like, hmm, you could put these pieces together and it seems like there's something interesting that you could do there. Um, and then two of us actually worked at Abercrombie in college. And there is a little bit of this idea that an Abercrombie very different in 2011 than it is now. Uh, now, I think it's the it was the best performing stock in 2023, which is just totally wild. But back then it was different CEO, different vibe. The uh, you know the shirtless dudes spraying cologne, playing like pretty bad electronic music, whatever. But part of it was just like the vibe of that brand was just like so the opposite of everything that we wanted to be. So it was like so bad. It was like, this cannot be the norm in men's fashion. Cause it was just like, so serious, so exclusionary. So like, you can't sit with us sort of stuff. And if you don't have rippling six pack abs, you can't be a customer. And so we were just like, part of it was like, let's just be the total opposite of that. The other thing that was just like interesting to us at the time was the idea that we loved the pictures of our dads from the 70s and 80s, you know, when when uh, they were on vacation, you know, the looks, the vibe at that time was pretty awesome. And we felt like nothing existed at the time that kind of like paid homage to that, had that kind of a vibe, um, particularly the shorter shorts. And so that was like a key component too, where it was just like, hmm, it was kind of like a mixture of like all these things that we think are interesting that we think could, if you bring them all together, could lead to an interesting opportunity. And that was, that was a big part of it. And then it was just sort of like, hmm, well, what do we do? What What's a first step? Let's see if we can make a sample. Let's see if we can actually make a pair of shorts that, that seem interesting. You know, first attempt, the person who was supposed to make the shorts just like took our money. And then, so we were like, oh, this is a bummer. Uh, didn't deliver anything. Second attempt, actually got some samples. And we were kind of like off to the races, wearing it ourselves, you know, wore 
we made a small, small run for ourselves and for some of our friends for a Lake Tahoe trip um, for a 4th of July weekend. And that I think was a little bit of the beginning of hmm, there's something there with the product. And, and at the time we made like shirts and shorts and there was really no comments on the shirts. It was like, there's, there's really nothing notable from other people, but the shorts, a lot of people were like, what are those both from the perspective of, I hate those, but also from the perspective of, I love those. And I need to know where you got those. So then when we got that in-person feedback, it was just kind of like, there's something, you know, there's, there's not apathy. Like meh. it was like polarizing, which is, which is exactly what you want. So, you know, I think I'll stop there, but those were some of the kind of like early days of kind of kicking this off, how it came about and maybe a, a little bit of a tidbit on maybe what felt like, huh, maybe there's, maybe there's something here that we might pull on that thread a little bit. Yeah, for sure. What, you know, of all things, and you kind of touched on this, like, you know, the inspiration, but like, it's kind of funny, like for you guys to come from that environment, you know, at school and then, you know, decide on short shorts and not like, you know, Hey, this ingredient in the supplement industry is really taking off. Like we should build something around this. You kind of went the other way that a lot of people, then a lot of people in that environment they're you know, they're reverse engineering the spreadsheet with, you know, looking at, especially with like, you know, the private equity type backgrounds, consulting backgrounds, like they got this, you know, they have these amazing spreadsheets to like show like why this is going to be the next greatest brand. And then you guys are just like, screw it. We're doing short shorts. Um, like, how did you, like, was that just something like, hey, we just have to do this? Or like, you didn't really think much about it? Or like, what was the, you know, I think I think it's awesome what you guys have built and just like doing something that different is like extremely impressive. So how did you guys, <laughs> how did you get four people on the same page with that background to be like, oh, hell yeah, short shorts? It was so organic, so funny. It was, I mean, I think the idea started with one of the co-founders and then, the second one was just sort of like, huh, yeah. And uh, then there were some some just like overlaps. We all had like a personal experience that made it something that made sense for us. So, and I, I played rugby uh, at Stanford. And so generally shorter shorts, right? Uh, two other guys played soccer at Stanford generally generally shorter shorts. And then a fourth was from spent a lot of time growing up in the Southeast where generally shorter shorts are more the norm. So there was a little bit of that where, you know, we all had these sort of experiences, you know, in college you do like the whole uh, theme party sort of thing or whatever. And so there's a lot of trips to Goodwill or whatever to get some like cool retro vintage stuff and could find some cool, you know, ridiculous short shorts from back in the day. And there was all that, but there was like, can't find the product that we want to exist anywhere. So then there was that component as well, where it was just like a total product gap in the market. So we didn't have the spreadsheets as much to, to start it, but there was a little bit of, I mean, it's so obvious <clears throat> short shorts are everywhere now, totally the norm. I don't, we're not claiming that it's because of us, but it was just very, obviously different at the time to where 
the product differentiation piece and the gap in the market from a product perspective was actually pretty pronounced. So there was that component as well. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I'm so glad you guys did it. And uh, I definitely think you deserve some credit for like really pushing that movement through. I remember when a buddy of mine started wearing them. I, I forget when this was, but like a couple of years after you guys had, you know, really gotten it off the ground and it definitely caught people's attention in the beginning. And I feel like now it doesn't as much. It's just like, oh yeah, there oh. it is. But I love that you guys did that. And I love how it wasn't just like, hey, you know, we see this this trend or whatever. And, 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 and in a way you did do that, but- I love how it's like more of a feeling than spreadsheet. And I think that's awesome. Um, and then where'd you go from there? So you had some some team members with backgrounds in, you know, fashion, it sounds like, a little bit of retail background. And how did you how did you get the brand going from there? We started selling just good old fashioned in person. <laughs> and so, you know, made a very small run of product. And would do like two things. One, hosted some events, like just would go to the owner of the bar and just say, hey, you know, can we rent out your back area? We'll guarantee we get people in the door and you don't charge us. And so just, you know, bringing the friends, friends of friends, getting them there, <clears throat> showing them the product, getting their feedback. Yeah, that was one of the early things. The other is just like putting shorts in our backpacks. And I feel so old saying this, but... This was right when the Square card reader came out, like Venmo didn't exist, Square Cash didn't exist. And people would, again, people would come up to us because there'd be a group of us like, I don't know, playing Frisbee at the park or at brunch. And we'd all be wearing these ridiculous, bright, shorter shorts. And again, it was just different. So again, and then because I think there was a, always a vibe of, we're not cooler than you. We're just normal people having a good time. And there was always a welcoming vibe, which we, which I think was authentic to us as people. And then always, I think, permeated the, the, the vibe of the brand. People would come up to us. They felt comfortable sharing their thoughts with us. So in-person selling was, was, I think, one of the first things. People would be like, what, what are those? For the people who are like, I'm interested like we have some in our backpacks if you just want to try them on and people would try them on and then they'd come out with them and they'd be like doing their fashion show sort of thing. Like they would be really excited and it was cool to see, but then we just swiped the credit card and that was some, <laughs> some of the first sales. I love it. Uh, I'd say outside of that, like a second thing, we just, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So we, we had to do some pre-sales and uh, so just, you know, trying to, trying to build buzz, get people on the email list sort of thing. And uh, trying to get people oriented and excited around, hey, there's this date when we're kind of like dropping our first product. Um, so just like make sure you're ready sort of thing. And <clears throat> and we weren't actually dropping the product. We were just making the pre-sale available. And uh, so that was just a great way to, I think, have like a shareable launch event that people could talk about, share with their friends. And it was a, a great way to just be able to you know, bring in some cash without having to front the inventory costs. Uh, and without having to take inventory risk as well, because you you know the amount of units you need to make. Um, we did that for a bit, had some bummer times when we missed on a delivery date because we set expectations around a delivery date. And that was a huge bummer. Uh, so we, we we tried not to do that much, much more. But then then it was just like 
transitioning mo- more to the Shopify store and and then just sort of like trying to figure out how to get like cheap word of mouth going uh, because again, we didn't have a ton of money. So then it was just that process of just trying to find these ways to use the social platforms where you could just really grow and like, what are the algorithms really favoring and just riding those waves? Cause as you know, at that time, it was like the wild west of social. Like you could just do some crazy stuff if you just got really deep and tried a bunch of things and, and tried to be creative. So that was sort of the next step. Yeah. So you get the ads going and um, running fr- from what I've read, it sounds like running like a very kind of like of that era standard kind of direct response Facebook ads to, you know, Shopify website playbook of like, you know, we're trying to spend this amount and get this yeah. amount in return, you know, keeping it on ROAS, keeping it on CPA. And so, yeah, walk me through kind of like the initial way that you approach advertising and then kind of like what led you to, you know, start looking at that differently. So, I'd say before that, we tried to do a lot of, as I said before, like free stuff, but even on the show, social platforms, like <clears throat> um, giveaways, uh, you know, just trying to use all those like viral mechanics of like, do this and share it with five of your friends and tag us in your comments, like all that stuff that could feel janky. We tried to make it feel fun and authentic. I do wish that maybe we continued to focus on that a little bit longer, but we did transition to more of just like a straight down the fairway, put a dollar in, see how many can come out, drive people to the site. So then, you know, we, we did that and there were a bunch of people doing that as well. And we tried to just get really good at it. And, you know, I think we were a bunch of nerds, so we just loved getting into the data. And again, at that time, I think the economics and the performance was also just very different than it is today. I mean, the returns you could get, from putting a dollar in the system, if you will, were pretty ridiculous. So there, I think there was like a solid CPM arbitrage, a solid, um, this is clearly better than any other place to, at least from a paid perspective, to put your dollars. Um, especially if you were willing to just like put in the time and the hours to, to figure out what works. Um, you know, so we did that. And <clears throat> at least for a period, uh, it worked. It worked really, really well, and worked really well. I think for a lot of brands. And then I, I mean, from the from the transition perspective, and I think a lot of brands do run into this, is that it just you know stopped working as well as it used to. You know, you, you start to pine after the good old days, right? When whatever ten row as or six row as or whatever. <clears throat> but for us, a couple things happened that that I think triggered. Uh, hey, we need to take a fresh look at this and maybe just like start from a blank slate sort of thing from a strategy perspective. One was we looked at just like our traffic sources and found that just like from a percentage, like composition of our new customer revenue, uh, the portion that you could mark as paid was just like the percentage was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It was totally like the growth was outpacing unpaid, owned and organic, whatever you want to call it. And that was, that was something A, that we didn't even really look at much. But then when we started looking at it, I was like, okay, this is a red flag. ROAS is looking good, but then you you just sort of realize Facebook doesn't have the context on the other end of the story, sort of like the unpaid end of the story. 
And so you're like, ah, yeah, there's this, there's this discrepancy here that we thought we were killing it, but we were actually like losing the broader, like fundamental health of business game. And, and then we did start to see like degradation in performance, uh, from like, you know, CAC up, CPM up. And, uh, and then we started selling across multiple channels. So, you know, when you're in a Nordstrom or whatever, we need a the DR ad that you're running, you know, I don't, it didn't for us do a good job at, you know, getting people in store or getting the people who are in the store already to see our product and be like, Oh, I know them. I trust them. They're my shorts providers. So I'm going to go to them. Uh, so we realized we just needed a new playbook. And uh, I think the other, the other piece is we were a venture backed business. So you know, the, at the beginning, the goal was let's grow like a, a technology software company and maybe someday we'll get acquired off a uh, revenue multiple. And so it, I think it's just a different approach when you're not bootstrapped, uh, maybe allowed us to be a little sloppy, if you will, lose money. So then I don't know what it is. Maybe, you know, the sheen wears off and, and a VC firm doesn't want to put the word chubbies on their portfolio page, whatever it is, you know, we lost the ability, I think, to raise capital at an accretive, accretive valuation. So that, that was the other thing where we just kind of had to wake, we got to reset the business, um, you know, focus on profitability. What even is contribution and contribution margin? We didn't even know what that was. It was all revenue all the time. So let's like not pursue massive revenue growth. And let's figure out how to drive you know, contribution dollars and then EBITDA and then net income to the extent possible. So you, you kind of have to do that that big ego hit as well. I mean, because I can speak for myself, I viewed revenue as like revenue up, ego up. And uh, that was you know something I think we all have to deal with. So that was a little bit of the transition as well. Like we just had to figure out how to generate more profit and then ideally more profitable growth. And it just wasn't happening when we just relied on this kind of like paid DR only, it triggered a shift. And what made you go from, you know, what made you look at brand and be like, okay, maybe we need to build brand to do that. Is that how you thought about it? Or like, how did you you know, eventually now you realize like, okay, cool. We also had to like, you know, go and do more brand marketing, but like, how did you, cause like a lot of people I feel like get in your position and they're like, oh no, like, you know, it's Facebook, it's performance, it's, you know, the whole industry, it's all of these things. They don't think like, oh, well maybe if I also build my brand separately, that can help. Um, so like, how did you, how did you realize like, oh, for marketing, we need to make this shift and do this. So one of the, one of the co-founders, <clears throat> his name's Tom, he was like obsessed with consumer psychology, which is like so funny because he was like a, I think he studied like math and uh, stuff at, at Stanford. So it was like this crazy uh, combination of heavily quantitative and technical with just like someone super interested in just like these like really like soft science, like the creative components and things like that. I bring that up because uh, there's this book called uh, Kellogg on branding. It's like one of the 
seminal books on brand stuff from uh, Kellogg uh, Business School, which I think is the business school at Northwestern, which is like known for having like one of the best brand focuses in an MBA program. I think a lot of the graduates go to like your big, let's call it like P&Gs and, you know, the big like consumer brand companies. He read the book and he really, I think, started to get a clear understanding of what brand even means a lot of examples around like how to articulate it the value of it what it what it is like it's like appealing to mindset and perception and things like that and like why it's beneficial so like all these like foundational things that i knew nothing about maybe the other two co-founders knew something about but i i, I speak for myself knew nothing and um so i think there was a little bit of like foundational <clears throat> understanding in terms of, Hey, this is the thing that we're trying to do. We just happened to get into this, you know, performance marketing machine thing. And it was like a drug and that you could just like grow and then everything's up and to the right. But I think we always had this knowledge of the power, the importance of brand and it being something that fundamentally is like the reason someone chooses you um, for whatever the need is that they have and doesn't like do any kind of like logical or rational mental calculus. And so we knew that existed. We just knew nothing about tactically how then to do that, but it was something that to us, we realized, Hmm, this is maybe a missing piece. And we didn't really have a choice. I think is the other thing, like there were times, and I think a lot of brands have brand budget, maybe it's like 5% of their marketing spend or something like that. And it's the first thing to get cut when they miss a monthly number or whatever. But it's like this nice to have budget where maybe they'll put some money behind a video that they made or some campaign that they're running that isn't necessarily focused on driving sales, but it's it's like a sporadic thing. Like we were no different. And so we kind of knew that that stuff existed and could be a thing, but we would always just cut the budget because we would measure it on in terms of like how it drove purchases. Like we'd measure it right next to our DR. And so it was like, ah, nope, didn't work. Stop it. But when you run out of options, uh, you got to try what seems to be the only other option. And so that's kind of how we got to a place where it was like, okay, we got to figure this part out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, what did that look like then when you started rolling it out? Were you, because like you said, you know, the performance engine is like a drug. So all of a sudden you're like weaning off of it. What did that transition look like? And like, how did you start leaning into brand more? And like, what did that look like tactically? So, yeah, I guess like the tactical, tactically, how do you transition from like a heavy focus on DR to maybe more of a balance between brand and DR? It was a couple of things. One, it's a mindset shift, right? So there's like a lot of people in an organization that have a definition of what success is and what failure is and like how you spend money and how the PL functions. Like you've got finance, you've got marketing, then you've but you've also got like a board of directors. And so there's mindset shifting that has to happen where it's kind of like this is existentially important. We have to figure this out. And we're no longer going to evaluate every single dollar we spend based on how it converts in a 
seven day click one day view timeframe. So mindset shift. Uh, number two is just simply the idea that this took a long time. So I think sometimes people are like, okay, January one, I'm DR January, February one, I'm hundred percent brand. I'm now like a Super Bowl ad quality brand marketer. No, not at all. So it's like, I don't know, three years, two, three years to just kind of like gradually make some of these transitions get because it's about confidence, right? Like with DR, the knock on it is that all of the things that we already talked about, but the pro of it is it's like, you can confidently invest in it because you, at least the way the attributable revenue is presented, it's like very confidence inducing. It's like, this is truth. And you just don't have that, but to, you, so you got to develop the confidence. So, so that's a, that's a big thing too. It took time, but then tactically it was like the framework we used was like performance brand building, if that makes sense. So like we didn't sort of like throw our hands up in the air and just be like, I, I don't know how I'm going to track this, but I'll spend all my money on it. I'm fine wasting money. No, I mean the, the, <clears throat> we did that a little bit. So like a quick side story is as we were stumbling along, trying to figure things out, we knew we had to pick a metric that would represent success or failure in our, let's call it brand building efforts. <clears throat> so it was just this general idea that, oh, brand strengthening your brand means increasing brand awareness. So then like the, the, the logical assumptive leap we made was video views is like the best way to, to get there based upon our capabilities and whatever. So we are like, okay, for a year, we're going to commit to getting video views. We got really good at it. We went viral a bunch. I think we were written up as one of the top 10 most viewed brands in the world. And long story short, like we look back and we found that there was really no change in our business that we could identify revenue wise. And so I was like, oh gosh, this is super humbling. Brand building is stupid. <laughs> uh, the, the thing that we believed as like modern digital marketers is actually happening. We wasted a bunch of time and money. But what we realized is that we chose, we didn't do the work on the data side to find the right metric for us, the right behavior that we should really try to drive that represented uh, or that had the highest probability coupled with like our ability to impact that metric had the highest probability of turning into a purchase, turning into revenue. It's like the only reason you do brand stuff in the first place is to be more profitable, make more money. It's not just, I don't know, to have a cool logo, right? So that was the core thing that we had to, to figure out. So then, okay, once you figured that out, and so we were able to basically, in the same way you have a conversion value for a purchase, right? Um, we would get conversion values for non-purchase digital behaviors, all engagements on social, you know, things like that. So uh, then it was like, okay, now that we kind of have some of these conversion values that we feel relatively confident translates into actual revenue in 30, 60, 90 days, let's just add that as a layer for evaluating the performance of our direct response. Like let's not do anything different, but let's just add an additional layer in terms of like how we optimize budgets and how we evaluate creative uh, in terms of what's working and what's not. 
And that was great because like, that's something that we knew how to do. We had an operational rhythm in place where we'd learn stuff about creative. We'd tell our team, our team would generate more creative, more uh, like iterations of things. And now we were just using different data inputs to tell our team, okay, make more creative like this. Um, so that was like a, a slight tweak, but when you're optimizing off of new data, um, the result can be quite different. So, you know, that was a pretty big thing. And, and then I think the second thing was get, getting a little bit more confident once we kind of knew these behaviors we wanted to drive and that they did have financial value for us. And I think it's going to be these, the value of these behaviors in terms of actual dollars, it's going to be different for every brand. But once we found that we could value those things, we could then start the process of generating video creative, which we did like in-house, super cheap, oftentimes filmed on an iPhone or like a cheap digital SLR or DSLR, uh, like on a just very simple, cheap, like free, um, not hundreds of thousands or whatever, and waiting two months to get your creative. Like this is like, want to put it out by lunchtime sort of thing. and. Uh, but we knew what the metric was of success. So we could just take a lot of shots on goal, uh, put them out organically. And then the things that would hit our threshold, we would now feel more confident putting dollars behind them where the campaign objective was maybe more reach or follower growth or something like that. So that was like a, maybe part two of, you know, starting to feel more confident investing in going, going broad. And then maybe part three was, okay, once you kind of feel like you've got validation that there's something there, starting to explore different channels where it's like, okay, I understand how fleeting a video view on Instagram can be. You just scroll right by. Let's let's start thinking a little bit more about like focused and quality attention. So started thinking about things like connected TV and linear and things like that, where it's just much harder to switch off of that content. And so then when you start thinking, okay, there's value to that in terms of like the quality of the impression, the mental impact that you're having. So those were maybe like mindset shift, knowing that it's going to take time. We chose the wrong metric. We knew we needed a metric, chose the wrong metric, kind of figured out what the right metrics were after like this massive investment in data capabilities, data stack, data engineers, data scientists. And then started once we had those metrics um started analyzing our dr differently getting a little bit more confidence in going a little bit more broad in um on meta so like not really changing much but then also exploring a little bit more on just different channel uh feeling more confident putting dollars behind video uh, more broadly in different channels so that was a little bit about like the tactical process that at least we went through um, and that generally seemed to work for us. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks for, thanks for sharing. And then like, if you were, you know, let's say today you're getting chubbies off the ground, kind of like doing the same thing. Like, how would you approach that from the beginning? Like, would you start building brand from day one? Is there a certain point where it's like, as the business scales, like you should start focusing on it more? Is it like, you know, get to the first X million just in whatever way you can and then start trying to build brand or like, how would you approach this as, you know, more up and coming brand in you yeah. know, today's environment? Totally. 
I think there's a theoretical answer. Like this would be ideal in theory. And then there's like a practical answer. It's like from a theoretical perspective, I would probably to the extent possible, not use like paid social, uh, at least like on the conversion side, just because it, one of the things I realized is that as humans, we have a fixed number of like thought minutes in a day, right? There's just, you can only think so many thoughts. And so when you're thinking about one thing, you're not thinking about something else. So then there's a huge opportunity cost to what you place your focus on. And so I think one of the things I learned is the leverage we got from uh, focusing an incremental minute on direct response was like super low beyond a certain point. So um, I probably would use maybe the, I would use caution or discipline in terms of like how much time to spend on these sorts of things. Because looking back, I would have wanted to continue to, and we did this at the beginning, beginning, but then we kind of still did it, but maybe to a slightly lesser degree, focus just on like, what is the biggest, most creative, cheapest, but most like notable, bold and, and memorable thing that we can possibly do? Because that takes time to think about. And I think that's like really important. It doesn't have to be massive stunt. It doesn't have to be anything like that because a lot of brands will feel like that's just not for me. But interesting things like it behooves us. And I think we uh, are very well served by just doing interesting things. It just kind of like makes people's lives better. It reflects well on you. Like that's kind of our job as as people building things where we're not selling something that has a patent or, you know, is like adding 15 pounds of muscle to your body in, in a week or helps you live 30 years longer. We're all selling commodities generally. And therefore there's maybe some product differentiation on the margin, but it's very much changing people's minds so that they choose you versus what they can find on you know, Amazon or in Walmart. So I would, I think I would just like use paid social sparingly, <clears throat> maybe focus on uh, reach much earlier, uh, just like really broaden that funnel. And, but I would just try to do as much as I could um, with organic. And I'm, I'm quite ignorant on influencer to be perfectly honest i mean i just don't think it we're, we're doing some cool stuff like with george kittle he's amazing like he's the tight end on the 49ers and a few other people that i think have gone really well but um i don't know i think one of the other things i might do is explore if i have someone that i can get connected to who i think is a fit for the story i want to tell brand i want to but already has a following I might bring them on as a co-founder and like give, treat them as a real co-founder to the extent there's like interest and you develop a relationship and things like that. Because having built-in distribution for free day one is just massive and it's worth so much. And even if it feels expensive sharing equity, I think it just makes the pie so much bigger uh, to where maybe like the value of your smaller piece will be 10 X what it would have been had you not done something like this. So those are just a couple of things that I think about if I were to have done it uh, differently, but I think in a, in a practical level, you need to start driving some sales somehow to see if there's even a reason to 
spend your time on this thing. Um, and so maybe you got to use paid social to do that, but maybe you can also just sell stuff in person somehow, uh, find creative ways to do some local stuff to get people out and, and start to get feedback. Like, cause you've got to have exceptional product to the extent possible. And I think you've got to f- get product in people's hands in order to know whether or not you have exceptional product. So I think that's the other piece as well, that if you're not able to just like get your message out and get your product in front of people, you got to find ways to do that. Ideally the cheapest ways to do that. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that those are some of the ways that I might approach things differently if I were to do it again. Yeah. And I think it is helpful because like, you know, there is still that, you know, what's great about social is like, especially the new kind of era is like, you can just post something and as bad as the algorithm is, you know, if something hits, it hits and that's unpredictable, kind of has a mind of its own, but like never before could you just like post something basically for free. And then maybe a week from now you wake up and a million or even, you know, in some cases, 10 million or tens of millions of people have seen something like that's crazy. Or even just like, you know, I've interviewed people over the years on the show who it's like, they just make YouTube videos about their product or how to use their product. And it's like slowly, but surely over time, like free distribution does exist. Um, But like you're saying, like it does take creativity. It's not like the playbook that everyone else is following. And I think that's, what's tough too, is a lot of people look at marketing almost like it's a test and there's only like, you know, there's, you know, the 10 questions and there's 10 correct answers to the question and everyone's trying to follow the same playbook. But what's funny is if everybody makes the same commercials and we see this all the time, none of them stand yeah. out until the oh. calm ad hits you. And, you know, it's a the calm <laughs> logo with rain in the background and like, that's it. And it's like, wow, that's different. Except, you know, in a meeting, I'm sure, and maybe not in that meeting, but like, I'm sure in other meetings, people have had crazy ideas and it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's like, to your points, it's like, you know, even down to Chubby's as a brand, what I think is amazing about it is it's not, it's not uh, like it is obvious, but it wasn't proven. And, um, you know, it's easy to do the same, even in marketing. And I think that's why, you know, you look at a brand that's survived the test of time, like Nike compared to, you know, the brands yeah. that have come and gone since it's like, they're constantly reinventing themselves, taking risks or in the luxury world, you just look at the LVMH brands. It's like, yeah, let's just take, you know, Louis Vuitton, this, this brand that's like at the pinnacle of fashion. And, you know, let's, let's have, let's, let's, let's spray paint it. Let's, you know, go crazy and turn it into a streetwear brand overnight and see what happens. Like that is really risky. Um, and it, it ends up working, but like, you know, to all your points, I think what you're saying, it's like, it is hard to give a tactical, you know, training on how do you be creative and how do you do things that stand out and like find white space. If you could just give that away, then there wouldn't be a lot of value in, you know, people like yourself starting new brands. Um, and there'd be no reason to, for them to exist. So, you know, I think while it's hard to give specifics, I think, you know, the ideas you shared, hopefully will give other people some ideas on what they can do differently, um, today. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's incumbent upon us to, to be interesting at the, you know, at the end of the day, like we owe it to the world. We owe it to our employees, like our investors or whoever, like ourselves. And, um, like uh, the the guy who founded the Ogilvy agency, David Ogilvy, like awesome advertising person, very like outspoken, 
But one of the quotes he has is like, you can't bore people into buying problem uh, buying products. You can't bore people into buying products. You can only interest them into buying products. And um, it's just like, yeah, I think one of the things that can just so easily happen is just like you you start to view yourself <clears throat> as a company, corporate entity selling to faceless consumers, and um, and you you kind of lose this the the reality that in a lot of ways like a brand is a person and. Uh, like it's a real human relationship and and uh like you're you're selling to to people who want to be in a relationship with with other people or things they like or whatever and uh i think that's one of the things that i just see is like man let's just let's just step it up try to be interesting even if it's just in your dr i mean just like spend a lot of time on it we spent stupid amounts of time on this stuff and put a lot of people on it and probably if you looked at like our resource allocation personnel wise, probably be like, why are you spending so much money and people hours on content and just writing these ads and, and trying to find interesting captions and, and whatever. But our goal was always to just, regardless of whether it was an organic piece of content paid, even if I'm trying to evaluate this off of how I get clicks, it's like, this has to be in the running for being the best piece of content you see all day as a, as a, as a person, like bar none. And not that we ever met that standard or I think we, maybe we did sometimes, but just having that be a filter of just, gosh, we got to put our heart and soul into this because it would be letting people down. If it just, you know, fell flat, if it felt like an ad, if um, like one of the things we always imagined was like, if I have to see this person who viewed this ad tonight at happy hour, I don't want them to be uh, like talking shit to me about how bad that was. Right. Like I, I want to be proud. I want them to be like, that was awesome. Like that was really cool. And like, it's hard though. So even if like you just do dr till you die which is totally fine like let's let's put effort into it let's like step it up to the extent possible and people will appreciate that like people will see that and appreciate that and i think that's one of my biggest learnings as well yeah and i think it's a good point like who said it has to be boring <laughs> like who said facebook ads just because you're paying for them buying for them you you can't grab people's attention or same with you know youtube advertising i think back to you know og chubby's days with the um you know, original Dollar Shave Club ad. Like mm. that was a direct response yeah. advertisement. It also right. built brand. Like a lot of people watched that and then right after went and subscribed. Great offer, great ad. Introduced the brand, built brand, made people laugh. It was different. Like people still probably go today, look up the ad on YouTube and go watch it. What, 10, 10 12 years later? <laughs> like totally. that's insane. And it's a direct response ad that they paid to 100%. put in front of people on YouTube. That's a yeah, great point. One, one, 100%. And maybe one of the other things that's maybe just helpful is to just be specific in terms of like what I think at least it means to build brand. Cause it can somewhat be for me, at least it was very hand wavy and because it was hard to define, yeah. I didn't know what I could do to do it. So for us, like in a person's mind, it's like, there's no longer a uh, an objective, rational comparison process that takes place when that person buys your product. It's 
I think shorts, I think chubbies. It's not this pair of shorts is a little stretchier than that one. So that's like what happens in the mind. And so you got, you got to change minds, right? Uh, it's, it's, you got to get out of the logical rational of what oftentimes like bottom funnel performance marketing can be where it's like product offer urgency and into this whole, like fundamentally like changing minds. So then that's, that's what happens, but then how does that actually show up in data? Uh, like in Google analytics, the way that it shows up or like the, the behavior that then happens is once someone wants a product from you, they branded search, they'll search chubby and then they'll come to your site or they'll just enter chubbies.com in their browser and then they'll purchase. And then that will show up as from an unpaid traffic source, right? I mean, that that's how it all manifests in this like resilient base of organic revenue or owned in organic revenue. And that speaks to like what I said earlier, which was like the problem we were trying to solve is that paid was becoming an ever increasing percentage of our total new customer acquisition revenue. And we had to reverse that trend. And so more than anything, we were just backing out. How do we drive this black box of owned and organic revenue? And, and it just kind of like, so happened that it could be called brand building, but that's like how it manifests. And so when they, when you start like maniacally tracking that data, like what's my paid versus unpaid new customer acquisition from like a traffic source perspective, and just like really get deep on the unpaid side and just experiment with things that you can do to drive it. That can be defined as brand building stuff, but it's effectively people purchasing from you without being prompted by prompted by DR, or it's, as you mentioned earlier, like having the performance of your DR go up because you've already prepped people. So both of those things should happen. Uh, but it shows up in like this increasing baseline. Like the other way it shows up is like your worst days get better sort of thing. So like if for some ungodly reason, like your Facebook ad stopped delivering, you should have a, a higher baseline. Whereas for a long time at Chubby's, it was just like revenue through the floor. But you, sh you should have like more resilience in your business as well. So that's that's a way that I define it. Like brand is what you have revenue-wise when you turn off your DR, turn off your discounts, turn off your product launches. Like it's what you have that's left over. And that then becomes something where a lot of brands are like, oh, uh, I need to work on that. <laughs> because if I turn those things off, you know, I don't really have a business. But it's it's like a very tangible, quantifiable thing that you can then work to improve over time rather than this hand wavy thing of a brand, brand marketing. So I, I hope that's helpful too for your audience. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good point. And I really appreciate you, you know, going deeper into that because it is, you hear the word brand, it's like you, you picture like the classic red Coca-Cola billboard or, you know, Christmas campaign, holiday campaign from, from Coca-Cola or, you know, whatever insert yeah. XYZ large company with millions of dollars that they can spend on a Super Bowl commercial. But what about me? You know, I'm just yeah. trying to, I'm just trying to like, to your point, it's like, you know, if I don't, if I don't have these ads, I don't have revenue. Um, so no, I think that's, that's, those are all really good points. And, you know, I think what, what else is encouraging too, is like a lot of these moments are already happening. Like people are talking about your brand. People are exactly. Googling you. Exactly. And so it's not as scary to make that transition. I think as it like, as it seems, because it's something that's already happening. And like, 
if you asked a lot of, you know, marketing leaders or brand owners, hey, would you like more, you know, organic revenue? They're not going to say no. Um, totally. And yeah, it's just one of those things. I think now is a great time to start working towards that too. And I think you've got a good point with, you know, or what did you say earlier? You're like, you don't have to start January 1st and be fully brand by February 1st. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but, you know, I feel like, you know, as founders, we're always in a rush. And so it's just like, you know, it's okay totally. to take that six, 12 month or even long. Like if you look at any public company, like speaking of Abercrombie, like that, they had a great 2023. They had a lot of years that were like bad or just okay, even under their current leadership. So um, revenue, you know, revenue drops, revenue, like yeah. negative revenue. Same thing with like, I was studying UGG and their brand transformation. Oh, um, yeah. You know, where they were completely like off price and there were both Abercrombie and Ugg, like they were, they were like meme worthy in terms of like, yeah, if you're associated with those brands, you are not cool. <laughs> you know, they were the opposite, opposite of cool. Yeah. And, and how they went through resets. And so it's, it's possible, but to your point, multiple years of like just resetting, resetting. And yeah. it's, it's part of the journey. Like every brand goes through it, which is like another process, but for brands like ours, like you, you don't have to do the thing where you're just like, I'm going to have a 30% drop in revenue. And I just need to prep for that. Like if you transition over multiple years, it could mm -hmm. be something that is almost imperceptible. Yeah. But yes, if, so if you do it right away, it can be, it can be jarring. And I just don't think it necessarily has to happen like that. Well, and what's great about being, you know, experimental and bring creativity in the mix is that's a variable that's uncapped. So if you do have something exactly. that hits even on month three or day seven of your transition, you know, that could be a totally, you could have a totally different business really quickly. And I think that's what's amazing about this new era. And what's amazing about a consumer brand is things can change overnight. Um, you know, Abercrombie, right? They had that whole documentary talking about how terrible the brand used to be. And it's like, whoa. That is like the opposite of probably what shareholders wanted to come out, but it put the brand back on the map. Now it's cool again. And, you know, I see people wearing it all the time. I see packages being oh, delivered right. and, you know, I didn't even realize their stock was on a tear until you mentioned on the call today, but like, yeah, it's like the best performing consumer brand of 2023, um, which is like insane. And it was dead to your point. Outperformed NVIDIA. Isn't that wild? I mean, that's insane. Like AI and people are like chasing AI and it's like, nope, you just need, you just need to become Abercrombie. It's like, I thought we didn't want to be Abercrombie. Yeah. That's amazing. Ugg is amazing too. Cause um, they just like, they were like, we're going to get out of distribution and like make it impossible to buy our shoe again, which is also completely counterintuitive, but then it creates the desirability that like the best consumer brands have. So it's like so hard because as a founder, you want to be everywhere. You want to do everything. You want to be spending on the performance ads. You want the cash now, but you know, from listening to you and what you've accomplished at Chubby's, you know, which you've now sold, it's, it's gone public as part of, you know, the larger umbrella of DTC. Um, you know, that's ultimately the, the way to get there isn't always the straightforward DR way. So let's kind of finish there, you know, like you, you guys made this transition and then, you know, you blink and what, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> A lot of other things happen. And then, yeah, just, just take us to where, where, where's the brand at today? Yeah, I mean, I mean, today it is yeah part of a public company as you mentioned, so solo brands, uh, ticker DTC, and um, but yeah, I mean, so very very 
it, you're right. It wasn't a straight line. <laughs> it was a very winding road where, you know, we thought the business was worth whatever big number. And then two months later it's worth zero. And then it's like, it's just like this crazy variable path that you go on. But, um, you know, we were very fortunate to be acquired in 2021. Uh, when we then had a, you know, IPO like two months later, it was crazy. And, um, and now, yeah, part of a, part of a public company. So super, super fortunate to, you know, have been acquired. I mean, I think one of the things that is maybe a testament to the power of the transition that we made was we were acquired during the iOS 14 debacle, right? That, that really was a difficult time for a lot of DTC brands, but that time we were made the shift to where like the vast, vast majority of our new customer acquisition was coming through owned and organic channels. Right. So it was a perfect time to show the resilience of our business when you had these other brands really, really struggling, uh, fighting for, you know, maintaining, you know, flatline zero growth or, or falling. And, and we were able to sort of like continue growing through that period of time. I think that was sort of a testament or the manifestation of, you know, all the work that we were doing and transitioning our business to more of like a healthy 50, 50 balance of like, you know, brand and DR, but, but pretty more than anything, just learning about like quantifiable brand building. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the coolest, you know, representations there because if our business like fell through the floor, you know, I don't think the acquisition would have happened at all. So it's like, okay, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. That's fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, we've, we've been like super, super fortunate and the brand, you know, continues to exist and seemingly is doing well. I mean, I'm, I'm just a, a fan from the sidelines now that it's a public company, but, uh, you know, I, I, it was amazing. I was recently in Dick's Sporting Goods to get like a golf travel bag and I saw a whole wall of swim trunks that were chubby. I'm like, this is absolutely insane. Never would I have thought that that would ever happen. But now, you know, strong, you know, omni-channel, multi-channel growth. And it's just, it's just humbling to see. And uh, it's been such a, you know, blessing to have been a part of the experience. Yeah, that's amazing. Full circle. And, you know, that's like the state of the industry right now. You know, in the beginning, like you said, nobody was sure if, you know, our direct consumer brands, the next technology companies just a decade ago to now it's like a brand is a brand. There's just a new way of getting things done. It's easier to, you know, get your ideas out there. It is more competitive. It's a different beast. Um, but all that being said, you know, it's still, the game is still alive and well, um, and really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. Um, you know, I know we only had an hour to dive into, you know, years of, of learnings and, uh, you continue to post, you know, a lot of these insights, like for, for listeners, if you're listening and you want to, you know, go deeper in the weeds, um, you can just follow, uh, follow Preston on social where you put, you know, I don't know, are you, are you posting daily or what's the, uh, once a week? I feel I, like every time I, yeah. I, I don't check social media too often, but I always see, see a new post from you and make sure to click in because there's always something, something interesting, you know, from behind the scenes of chubbies that you're going into. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, try, focusing on LinkedIn, trying to write, you know, turn it into a daily practice and just basically just trying to be as helpful as possible, sharing if if <laughs> there's a lot of pain from all the mistakes that I made. So to the extent I can share them so people don't have to go through the same pain, then then that's great. So yeah, I'm just Preston Rutherford. There's a little short emoji in the middle of my first and last name on, on LinkedIn. And um, yeah, trying to post, you know, Monday through Friday, who knows? 
hit or miss, right? Not all of them are bangers, but um, just trying to be helpful. Yeah. And just because it doesn't go viral, it doesn't mean it's not good. You know, it's just yeah, probably sure. a lot more specific to what people, you know, the more generic the post, the more, sure, the more widespread it becomes. But, um, you know, I think people listening will appreciate the ones that don't go viral because they're probably, you know, the more secret sauce of uh, sure. the chubby sure. secret sauce. Yeah, totally. Cool. Um, well, Preston, thanks for coming on. Uh, anywhere else you want to send people or we'll just link people to LinkedIn for now. LinkedIn's great. Thank LinkedIn, you. check it out. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to share your story and you know teach us about next generation brand building. Awesome, Dylan. Thank you. It was a lot of fun, and I mean, so much respect for what you've built um, as well. It's been it's been awesome to see. So, yeah, uh, it's a pleasure, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Yeah. Till next time. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. If you're not subscribed on iTunes or Spotify, go hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you're not on our email list, go sign up at wavebreak.co slash join. You'll join other e-commerce leaders at brands like Skims, Cartier, and Walmart, and thousands more learning exactly what's working in e-commerce right now. You won't want to miss it. Sign up at waybreak.co slash join. It's free. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day.